1: put me that the Word of God says it, I believe it.
0: And that's the way it is. And now here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody. If there's one thing that's become patently obvious in the last few months, it's that the founders were brilliant for giving us a second amendment. And all you have to do is look at Portland or Seattle, where the police are increasingly shoved to the side and rioters are taking over. And you see that millions of Americans are beginning, if they didn't already before, to treasure those freedoms to bear arms more than ever. But if Senator Kamala Harris has her way, you're not going to enjoy more freedoms under the Second Amendment, but fewer, because as National Review points out, she is the first person to be on a major presidential ticket in American history who openly supports gun confiscation. And of course, she's the number two to the presidential candidate who has said on the Biden-Harris campaign page that he's going to buy back the assault weapons and high capacity magazines already in our community. Doesn't that sound delightful? And yet so unconstitutional at the same time. So we're going to get some thoughts on it all right now from author and radio broadcaster Mark Walters. He is host of Armed American Radio and Armed American Radio's Daily Defense and also spokesman at the Second Amendment Foundation. Mark, great to have you back. How are you doing?
1: Oh, Janet, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about.
0: There is a lot to talk about. Let's get into it. President Trump said this week that Democrats are taking away the Second Amendment. He said they're going to take away your guns. And as sure as you're standing here today, if they win, that's what's going to happen. Do you think he's right?
1: I can prove it to your listeners right now. If you want to give me a couple minutes, I can absolutely prove it to them on Joe Biden's own website.
0: Great. Off to the races. Go ahead.
1: Okay. First thing, we've all heard, and I know you you and I have talked about this over the years, what's their go-to? The go-to is, in fact, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, said this just last week with gun violence spiking in Chicago and every other Democrat-controlled city in the country, by the way. She said, President Trump could help us if he would just do one thing first. We need universal background checks, common sense gun safety measures. Universal background checks means what? That means any gun transaction period wipes out private transfers. However, Obama's Department of Justice found universal background checks don't work unless we have registration. Why? Here's an example. If I sell you a gun, Janet, in a private sale today, which is legal, the government has no idea that transaction occurred. Why? Because there's no registration of our firearms. So when you hear the percentage from the left that says 40% of all transactions are made through private transactions without a background check, there's no way to know that number. It's a made-up bullet point. It's a talking point from the political left. There's no way to know that because there is no such thing as universal background checks with universal registration. Obama's own Justice Department told us it won't work. One won't work without the other. So let's use that now and go to Joe Biden's own website. Number one, as president, Biden will ban the manufacture and sale of assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, step number one. While working to pass this legislation, Biden will also use his executive authority to ban the importation of assault weapons. What is an assault weapon? As we see in Washington State and California, every single semi-automatic rifle, period. (laughs) It's whatever they say it is, and we know that to be the case. That's right from Biden's website, so we're going to ban that right off the bat. Number two, what about, Janet, the 50 million... Most popular modern sporting rifle, AR-15s, across the country. Now, what are we going to do with those, Joe? Well, Joe's going to quote from his site, regulate possession of existing assault weapons under the National Firearms Act, which means he wants to treat your semi-automatic AR-15s as machine guns, which is what the National Firearms Act does. He will pursue legislation to regulate possession of existing assault weapons under the nfa now that we do that that's universal registration right. because the nfa requires to know where every single one of those guns are and who has them so now you've got banning them and universal registration what is step number three from biden's website regulate possession of existing assault oh, uh, buyback excuse me buy back the assault weapons and high capacity magazines already in our communities yep. biden will institute a program to buy back weapons of war continually on our streets you have two options sell the weapons to the government or register them under the National Firearms Act. He just laid out for you all three steps for confiscating weapons that we've been warning about for over a decade.
0: Good grief. OK, well, first of all, isn't he the guy that calls them AR-14s? So maybe we should go back to that and then he he wouldn't be able to get to the actual AR-15s. <laughs> Joking, of well, course. But know. it's it's very, you know, this is really, really scary because you're looking at what's going on out on the streets and you're thinking... Defunding police, getting rid of everybody's guns. Gee, this sounds awfully Soviet to me.
1: You know, I, I've asked the question before. We've asked the question of each other. What is it about this agenda that requires them to disarm us? Why, for example, in the state of Virginia, when Democrats, as you know, took power for the first time in 25 years yeah. in the great state of Virginia, a state that I spent many years living in, graduated college in, have lots of family in Virginia, uh, why did when Democrats took power... Did they not go after fixing the Chesapeake Bay Bridge tunnel and the Norfolk tunnels, as they've exclaimed and health care in the state that they said Republicans didn't do anything with in education? But no, the first thing they did was 12 gun control bills.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: They got eight of them passed. Yeah. Blackface Northam signed eight of those bills. The assault weapons ban is coming up in the next session, the next legislative session. It's going to pass, and he will sign it. It's unfortunate. But, so that begs this question, because what happened in Virginia, Janet, is the model for what they want to do at the federal level. We know that if they take all three reins of power in Washington, D.C., exactly what happened in Virginia is what's going to happen at the federal level. And they're already saying that this is going to be their top priority. In fact, Kamala Harris as president, because let's face it, Joe's not the guy they're voting for. They're voting for Kamala Harris, who couldn't garner more than 2% of the vote during the primaries. We can talk about that in a minute, too. But the fact of the matter is she made it clear that in her first 100 days, she was going after guns. So then that begs the question again, what is it about their agenda that requires you disarm?
0: That's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question. What do you think the answer is?
1: Well, I think you mentioned it before when they come after the guns. This is communist Marxist stuff. We're seeing it in Democrat-run cities around the country. And it's very, very clear to me. And that is, absolute power cannot have absolute power when the people have the power to defend themselves against absolute power. So you can put two and two together and make four out of this one. It's very simple
0: now. Right. Well, you would think, though, that what's going on on the streets of Chicago and elsewhere would remind voters what happens when you enact gun control in some of these cities where the chaos is the worst is where they've had the heaviest gun control. The criminals right. continue to get their guns. They're fine. And you get rid of the guns from the law-abiding citizens who are sitting ducks. We've been through this. You know, how many times have we made this argument? Sure. Do you think there's been any difference with what's going on in America right now that makes the people more pro Second Amendment and less likely to back this agenda?
1: 100 gobzillion. I'll make up my own words. 100 <laughs> gobzillion percent. Yeah. I mean, you just nailed it. And the fact of the matter is, and here are some legitimate statistics for you black gun ownership is up 58% in America today. Wow. Because you know as well as I do that while it gets a lot of press attention, mainstream America does not want to defund the police. Trayvon Martin's own mother said, what? We need more police in our communities. Yes. Maybe we need to work on how we interact with each other, but we need a larger police presence in our communities to keep us safe. Antifa members stand there protected by the police when they show up to us. to go off on defunding the police. They're protected by the police. You know, it's it's crazy what we're seeing out there. A small minority is very vocal right now. But the mainstream Democrat, or formerly known as, as Democrat Party, mm. the Socialist Marxist Party, yeah. has adopted that. And I don't expect to see the shift that we would normally see to the center, the quote-unquote moderate center that we saw with Obama, Clinton, and every previous Democrat administration before, I don't expect to see that now because the far left has taken over as the radical left has taken over the party. As a result, gun ownership is at record highs. Inner city, black Americans, white Americans, brown Americans, red Americans, yellow Americans, green Americans, even people we don't know might not even be here from another planet are buying guns <laughs> to defend themselves against what they're seeing in these cities. So I, I, I am getting more and more confident every day as Americans embrace their Second Amendment as a result of the chaos that they're seeing that this is going to translate to votes for Trump at the ballot box. I'm convinced of it.
0: Yeah. And yet we still have to worry about them stealing the election. I mean, the whole mail-in oh, yeah. thing. I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I talk to a lot of people who feel exactly the way you do. And basically I do as well. I think they're shooting themselves in the foot to coin a phrase. I'm not trying to be punny or anything like that. But I mean, if you see them making a dumb mistake and think they're finished... Maybe they're not finished because of what they're plotting about the election. We're gonna come back right after this. Mark Walters with me here on Janet Meffer Today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there. for This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat 8 out of 10 times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God wouldn't want me to just throw my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at Janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I think President Trump is absolutely right. The Democrats are taking away the Second Amendment. They laid it out for us on the Biden-Harris campaign page. Mark Walters is with us, host of Armed American Radio and Armed American Radio's Daily Defense. Mark, we were talking about the the intent of both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to take away our guns. You know, Harris has said, we have to have, this is back in 2019, we have to have a buyback program and I support a mandatory gun buyback program. Then she said in the primaries, upon being elected, I will give the United States Congress 100 days to get their act together and have the courage to pass reasonable gun safety laws. And if they fail to do it, then I will take executive action. First of all, that irritates me on a lot of levels, not only because of the Second Amendment. Who in the world is this woman to be threatening Congress? Do what I mean, this is Obama. I guess we've seen this movie before. But who is this woman to say, Congress, do what I want or I'm going to do it myself. What about this power of executive action that is now the tool of the left to do whatever they want over and above the legislative Branch,
1: because they don't care about the Constitution. And, and I, again, you nailed it, Kamala Harris. That was a tweet she put out on July 25th, by the way. And in it, she said, "As president, I will give Congress, I will give Congress yeah. 100 days yeah. to get their act together and pass reasonable gun safety laws. If they don't, I'll take executive action. Thoughts and prayers are not enough." You know, I felt the same way. Who made you queen?
0: Yeah. Or God. Um, Yeah.
1: Your God. Yeah. God saved the Queen in this particular case, right? (laughs) We have, it's just, it's awful what the left has become. And they believe that they have, for whatever reason, the ability to do these things. Look, if you don't think the Constitution's real and it doesn't matter to you, you can do anything you want. Yeah. Anything you want to do. Right. And their own words prove that that's what they're all about. Look, when they're talking about taking away your Second Amendment right, I go back to this again. Listeners, please, ask yourself the question. I don't want to put the answer in your head. Ask yourself the question. Think about it tonight when you lay your head down. What about their agenda is it that they're doing this? Ask that, and you'll come up with your own answers. I would... would challenge
0: you to do that. Yeah. No, I agree. Here's the other thing is we're in a weird time period, as we were discussing a few minutes ago, with what's going on with the Antifa and Black Lives Matter and all the rest and the feigned race war that's really about Marxism. But here's what's weird. Back in the day, the left always needed something like a school shooting in order to justify this kind of talk. Now, the circumstances are completely reversed Everything we're seeing in front of us validates the need for the Second Amendment, and they're still talking about it. Have you heard anybody on their side of the aisle or anywhere across the American spectrum of people who are pointing this out? Hey, wait a minute. I thought you needed all this because of school shootings. We haven't had any big school shootings. Kids aren't even going to school. So how do you justify the need for common sense gun safety and registration? And has anybody been pressed to explain this at all?
1: No, and that's really – I'm glad you brought that up, Janet. This is really interesting. Gosh, I, I wish we had three more hours. Yeah. The, the, it, really, this is a rabbit hole that needs to be discussed, that, that we need to go down. Gun control right now, as Americans are buying more guns because they see this unrest, is crushing the gun control agenda right beneath the feet of Shannon Watts, Michael Bloomberg, etc. Yet the press, because they know they have the media, the mainstream, legacy, hateful, un-American, treasonous media – on their side they know they can continue to work their talking points and it flies in the face of the reality that we're seeing in real life 3.2 million background checks performed in july god knows how many there's going to be in august each month a record those are those translate to gun sales and you would think that that would get through to them well they're not talking about that message until a couple months ago curiously nancy pelosi floats out of nowhere a gun control message that kind of came out of nowhere, and I thought, wow, that's a trial balloon. Hmm. And I had a conversation with Gottlieb about that. Where did that come from? He said that wasn't as much a trial balloon as it was a dog whistle call to their base, that gun control is still on their agenda, regardless of the facts. But again, I have more faith. I have to. I I have to have more faith in the American public. I do not believe the American public is going to buy into this. I think you're going to see Trump pick up record black vote in America. I think you're going to see Trump pick up new gun owners who say, you know what? I don't want to lose this right. When I look at what's happening in the city I live in. Right. Right. I, agree I, don't, I, don't, I just, I have more, I have more faith in Americans than that. I really truly do. I, hope I'm
0: right. Yeah, I hope you're right, too. I agree with you. Now, there was a recent court decision that was pretty significant. The Ninth Circuit ruled just yeah. a few days ago that California's ban on large capacity ammunition magazines is unconstitutional and a violation of the Second Amendment. This is good. This is a good decision. What about, though, the role of the judiciary, you know, the district courts, the federal courts, ultimately the Supreme Court to say the Second Amendment stance? I mean, what? how much faith do you have in the court system to undergird what the framers wanted us to have in the ways of rights.
1: Oh another great question. The the LA Times put a column out on February twenty second that was headlined, Donald Trump has flipped the Ninth Circuit. And I've always referred to and many people on my side have referred to the Ninth Circuit as the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. It was the most overturned court in the in the nation by the Supreme Court for many, many years. It is rabidly anti-gun. It's based out of San Francisco it covers the eight states in the Western District. You can do the math and figure that one out yourself. They have been notoriously unfriendly to gun rights. And Donald Trump, this is why, this is what shows what is on the, what's on the election, what's, what's, what's on the ballot on November 3rd. It's not just the Supreme Court. We thought it was the Supreme Court in 2016. Now we've got Justice John Roberts playing games with liberals. Yeah. We don't know how he's going to vote, even on gun rights today. I know. So that makes this even more important. But the 300 selections that Donald Trump has put on the federal bench at the at the appellate level has changed the Ninth Circuit. They're one judge off now from having a conservative majority. Can you believe I just said that? It's
0: amazing. On the Ninth
1: Circuit. Yep. Here's the problem. That was a three-judge panel. The case that you refer to is what's called the Duncan case. It's been going for years. They law- He won in the circuit court. The lower judge in the circuit court in L.A. said, hey, you know what? That's a violation of constitutional rights, this magazine ban. And he allowed that. To- he kept that. Ruling opened for about a week before he was asked by some of the uh, the AG and the governor, close that ruling until we can get a, third cir- a Ninth Circuit appeal. During that week period before he issued a stay against his own ruling, which is unusual, millions of magazines flowed freely and lawfully into California. Now we have the three-judge panel at the Ninth Circuit. That case was heard on April 4th. And then on August 14th, the case that you referred to, the three-judge panel, a Clinton appointee and a Bush appointee and a Trump appointee, How do you think they voted bam bam yes yes and one no with a dissent from the clinton appointee and they upheld it as a complete violation of the constitutional second amendment right to bear arms and here's what's so vital about it the three judge panel used strict scrutiny to do that because it's a constitutional right that's how the liberals have been skirting the heller decision and the mcdonald decision because of the strict scrutiny that needs to be. That's why we need another case up there to cement that this fundamental right has to be looked at via strict scrutiny. We don't have enough time to go into the legalese there. Suffice to say, that means the court has to rule very narrowly because this is a fundamental right. And the third, the three judges on that Ninth Circuit panel did. Now, the question is, is Bashar and the rest going to move to have that to an banc 11-member panel on the Ninth Circuit? The answer to that is more than likely yes. But they are not guaranteed on a random selection because of what Trump did to the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. a a complete win here so this is crazy to watch but that it just shows and underscores how vital the judiciary is as you mentioned to this election if we lose that i believe personally that the winner of the the white house if trump retakes the white house which i believe he will the senate will stay with republicans however if biden harris win it i believe there will be enough uh, down ballots on there that they'll probably take the Senate as well. And that would be absolutely disastrous to America.
0: No doubt. Yeah, I think that that's really important information that you're sharing there, Mark, and good for people to understand. And I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to get to this before we had to let you go. When they talk on the Biden-Harris site about getting AR-15s off the streets, I mean, first of all, we know AR-15s are hardly ever used in crimes. I mean, that's, that's, you know, but... What about the execution of that? If you had a mandatory buyback program, wouldn't it necessarily involve police coming to your home? Because if AR-15s aren't there on the streets and they're mainly in people's houses, how exactly do they do this mandatory buyback?
1: Well, they do what they did in Connecticut. They talk a big game, they blow it up, and then nobody pays attention to their law And then they're too chicken little to enforce it because they know what would happen. Mm. If you had forced confiscation going home to home, you will have dead Americans on both sides of those front doors. You'll have dead cops. You'll have, because I'm telling you, millions of Americans will not give up their arms. And let's be real here. Kamala Harris did support that. She's backtracking now. But before I let you go. You got to remember one thing. Kamala Harris is going to try to become one of us on the campaign trail. <laughs> I'm a gun owner, she's going to say. She's going to play that card and I would never do that to you. We have a right to bear arms. I respect that. But and when you hear but, the second amendment doesn't have a but. I'll leave it at that.
0: Yeah, good point. And water guns don't count, Kamala. So we know you're a liar. <laughs> you know, th- this is the f- she is, and we all know it. <laughs> yeah, we all know it. This is the frustrating thing. And uh, do you believe though that they would actually attempt to forcibly get people's guns away from them. I mean, I think a yeah. lot of Americans yeah. go, what I never thought would have been possible maybe two years ago, now I'm thinking could very well be possible if these people were to get into power.
1: Yes, 100 percent. There'd be another civil war in this country, and I'm not afraid to say that.
0: I think you're Absolutely, right. Absolutely,
1: 100 percent. However, it would, However it would unfold, You've got to remember, I hate bumper sticker logic, Janet. I hate it until I really
2: love it. <laughs>
1: okay, Here's to Kamala Harris, as I call her. I hope I'm intentionally mispronouncing her name. Yeah, Here's the deal, Kamala. If, if 150 million law-abiding gun owners in possession of billions of rounds of ammunition and hundreds of millions of guns were a problem, dear, you would already know it
0: mm Great point. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because for millions of Americans, as you've pointed out wisely, time after time, they're law abiding citizens. They just want to be able to have the right to defend themselves, their families, their property in the event that they are confronted like you were. Um, And they're able to do that and not have to wait for the police to show up. And these days, there might not even be any police to show up if you live in certain cities in the United States. So all of this is really important. You got to tune in also to Armed American Radio and Armed American Radio's Daily Defense with the great Mark Walters. Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us again.
1: I love it, Janet. Thanks for having me on.
0: You bet. Take care. We'll be right back. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. A lot of us remember that famous quote from Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And that's certainly the case. But my next guest notes that unhappiness in families often can be caused by hidden destructive behaviors that the members have either overlooked or never acknowledged. What are those? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Magdalena Battles, author of Six Hidden Behaviors that destroy families. She's also a conference speaker and has a website, livingjoydaily.com. And Magdalena, it's wonderful to have you with us. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. You you think about bad family behavior and most of it, I guess we would imagine is upfront. Why do you highlight the hidden behaviors?
2: Well, the hidden behaviors. Is- Um, There are these patterns of behavior that exist in every family, and um, what happens is these underlying problems, they can fester and eat at relationships and eventually cause estrangement and people not wanting to be around each other, not because of huge issues or fallout from the family, but because of these little problems, these hidden behaviors that really destroy families and a lot of people don't even realize that they have these behaviors going on um, you know such as criticism they don't realize that they're being critical to their family every time that they're around them yeah and it drives their family members away
0: yeah no that's absolutely right and and it can be the little stuff it, relatively little stuff I should say that sometimes you don't pay as much attention to but that can be your undoing and you've got these six hidden behaviors one of which is a failure to forgive or apologize that's kind of an easy one to wrap your head around but we are commanded in scripture to forgive as we've been forgiven. Can you speak to that issue a little bit about how that manifests itself in families and does damage?
2: Yes, absolutely. With a lot of families, we end up harboring resentment and anger towards family members because somebody hasn't apologized for something that they've done wrong. And so we have a lack of forgiveness because they haven't apologized. Well, in scripture it doesn't say you must forgive when they as soon as they apologize. <laughs> No, it just says we must forgive. Uh, And so we need to learn to be people who are forgiving, even when they may not say the words, I'm sorry. Some people, some families function in a manner where they move on. They move past the behavior and um, they may not apologize, but they'll do it in other ways in their behaviors by, um, you know, bringing you a meal or, you know, just extending an olive branch and inviting you over for a holiday. So they may not have said, I'm sorry for what I did. But they move forward and they continue with your relationship. Mm. Well, what happens is the person who has been offended, obviously, they're going to have a hard time getting over it because they're still festering in this, you know, anger and, and going, well, why won't they apologize? You know, why can't they say what they did was wrong and say, I'm sorry? And um, again, Scripture doesn't tell us that we only forgive when somebody apologizes, uh, apologizes to us. It is forgiveness comes from a state of the heart. And what it, is, it, what it means is that we forgive in our hearts so we don't harbor resentment. We let go of the anger and we turn it over to God and say, God, help me to um, heal my, my hardness in my heart and help me to forgive this person so that I can have a relationship with them.
0: Yeah, that's really good. That is important to forgive and, and not turn everything, you know, every little molehill into a mountain. On the other hand, though, mm-hmm. you'll have situations where people are different. I, I found this in life where you have certain people who can just move on and it doesn't really bother them if they did something offensive, while the other person is just really upset and hangs on to it, who needs to forgive but also wants to discuss it. How would you mm-hmm. recommend people resolve that? If if you really are saying, "Listen, I I really deserved an apology for that. I can't move." on until we discuss it. But the other person isn't very inclined to sit down and have that conversation. How can you do that? What are some tips for being able to break that barrier down and be able to discuss the problem?
2: Right, yeah, that's a good question. Now, one thing that Scripture teaches us is that we should go directly to the person and talk to them face to face. It's not something where we bring an entourage or bring a bunch of other family members <laughs> with us to back us up and side with us. No, we just need to go one on one and talk to this person. And you do it in a, in a situation where it isn't heated, where you're not currently in an argument or um, having an issue. So you you say, you know, I'd like to meet you for coffee. I have something I want to talk to you about, and, and And when you go to them to talk to them, you need to approach the uh, situation with a conversation and a tone that is uh, seeking to heal the relationship, not to create more divide. Because sometimes when we get defensive and we say, you did this, you did that, it's only going to cause more fracturing in the relationship. So if you truly want restoration of the relationship, then you can sit down and say, I just want you to... Uh, see it from my side and, and I want to hear your side as well. And I'm telling you this because I do love you and I want a relationship with you and I want to help heal our relationship. And setting it in that tone helps to soften their heart too. And then you have to have it be willing to um, not expect an apology because sometimes mm. there are people that, won't apologize, yep. but you have to make that decision that it doesn't matter what the outcome is, whether they apologize or not. I'm going to have forgiveness because God calls me to forgive, regardless.
0: That's great. That's great. What about criticism? You had mentioned criticism before. Sometimes you'll have constructive criticism, but oftentimes in families, it isn't so constructive. At times, how, how do you differentiate between you just insulted me versus you really have my best interest at heart? What? How do we handle that whole issue of criticism in our families?
2: Yes, criticism is one that is more common in families, one of those hidden behaviors that just keeps bubbling up over and over again. Um, With criticism, we need to start being a little more conscientious of how we treat our families and how we talk to our family members. A lot of times, our criticism comes from a viewpoint of, we love you and we want to help you and we want you to be the best person you can be, so we're going to tell you how to do it. (laughs) Well, that can come off as insulting, you know, saying to your sister, "Well, you know, your dating life would be better if you could lose 30 pounds." No. It might be true, but it's also very insulting. Yeah, I didn't ask so for that, to, sis. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what scripture tells us in um in the Bible in Galatians about um about criticism and correction of a fellow believer, what it says is that if you are going to confront somebody about their behavior or something that they're doing wrong, then you need to be willing to bear their burden. And what bearing their burden means, you're going to walk, side, walk alongside them and help them through the situation. So if you are going to criticize, say, say your, your brother has a problem with alcohol, and you want him to go to, you know, get him some help. Well, you could just say, well, I think you need to go to rehab. That might be very well true, but it's just hurtful and it's not gonna help solve the problem. It just makes you come off as judgmental. Right. Now, if you say, I want to sit down and have a conversation with you and I care for you and I love you and I want to help you through this and I found a facility that um, is local and uh, I can get you uh, free tuition to go to this, through this program. And I'll even go to the first session with you to help you through it because I want to walk through this with you and I want to help you if you're interested in, in pursuing this. Yeah. So then it puts back on the other person. You're not the one that is changing them. It's up to them at whether they want to change or not. But the point is that you're willing to bear the burden with them because that's what we're called to do in Galatians. If we correct somebody, we need to be willing to bear the burden alongside them.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. What about if I'm the one who's receiving the criticism and I'm not so excited to receive it. I may need to hear it, but I don't necessarily want to hear it. What is the best attitude for me to have in that situation?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. Yeah, criticism is hard when we're on the other side of it, when we're the receiver. Uh, one one thing that we can do is um, just filter it through our own perspective and not be reactionary. So yeah. the key is uh, if, if you know, somebody says something to you, there may be a b- bit of truth to it, but it doesn't mean that you need to um, react right away to it, because a lot of times our reaction is going to be harsh. You know, when somebody says something that's critical, our, our immediate uh, defense mechanism is to be um, defensive and uh, to react in a way that's not so nice. Yeah. So what we need to do is take a step back and say, OK, I appreciate your input. And, and then you just kind of file it back in and, or put it in your back pocket. And then you can unpack that criticism later and then look at it objectively. You know, for example, if your sister says, oh, you need to lose weight to have a better dating life. Well, then you can say, thanks. OK, you don't have to really react to it at that time. But then look at it later on and decide what you want to do for it for yourself, for your own life. Yeah. And, and yep. sometimes there is truth involved but it doesn't mean that you need to react to it in that moment because a lot of times our reaction is is not going to be nice.
0: Oh, that's so true. We're going to take a short break. Dr. Magdalena Battles with us. Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families is her book, and we'll be right back on Janet Meffert today. With everything going on in our world today, life can seem pretty dismal. We have a pandemic, riots, racial tension, and you might be asking, how can I make any difference? Well, here's one way you can make a huge difference in someone's life, through the ministry of Preborn. Preborn is dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through offering free ultrasounds to pregnant women in crisis. And when women in crisis pregnancies see their babies on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, they'll choose life for their children. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound in the USA and pre-born centers are often situated in the highest risk abortion hotspots competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. The mainstream media doesn't want you to know that Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, had a racist legacy stemming from her well-documented connections with the eugenics movement. If you want to help make a difference in the midst of chaos, please support pre-born. One ultrasound is just $28 and five ultrasounds are $140 saving five babies' lives. 100% of your donation goes to saving Babies' lives. Please call 855 402 BABY. That's 855 402 2229. Here's one mom talking about what preborn has meant to her.
2: Hearing the heartbeat made me cry, and it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. Uh, She's been such a joy. Uh, I now see my daughter, and I cannot
0: imagine my
2: life without joyful, smart baby.
0: Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the cause for life? When you donate, you'll get a picture of an ultrasound, along with stories of other babies' lives who you helped to save. And right now, through a matching grant, your donation of $7,500 will place a machine in a needy woman's center. These life-saving machines cost $15,000, more than most centers can afford. Call now, 855-402-BABY that's 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com once again 855-402-BABY that's 855-402-2229 you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet well, here's a good verse, Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. We welcome you back to the show. Dr. Magdalena Battles is my guest. We're talking about her book, Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families, Strategies for Healthier and More Loving Relationships. And that's one of the hidden behaviors that destroy families, gossip. That's one of the ones that you mentioned, Magdalena, in your book. How do you curtail it in a family? If you have a family that, you know, all families do talk about each other. It's just a reality of life. But when does that discussion about a family member fall into gossip in a harmful way that really can destroy a family ultimately?
2: Yes, gossip is, is uh, talking about person in a, uh, another person in a way that is detrimental or negative, even if it may be the truth. So you could be saying, oh, so-and-so is going through a divorce. And did you hear that You know, their husband or their wife had an affair? That might be the truth but it's hurtful because it is negative information about their personal life. So um, gossip, it doesn't need to be false information in order for it to be gossip. It can be true information, but if it is harmful to their reputation or harmful if if they wouldn't want it being said about them behind their back, um, it is something that uh, shouldn't be said. And so with families, what we need to do is we need to take an opportunity to um, if we're thinking about a family member or are inquisitive about their lives, we need to pick up the phone and call them ourselves. I remember my mom asking me one time, or I was on the phone with my mom and I said to her, I said, Oh, how's, how's Justin, my brother, Justin doing And, and I said something like, Oh, I heard such and such, you know, he was dating this other girl now. And this was several years ago, um, when he was still single. And, and she said to me, why don't you pick up the phone and call him? I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. And you know, she was right. And I, it kind of took me, um, by surprise and i thought she's right you know i don't have to wait for him to call me the phone works both ways and if i want to find out what's going on with his life i should just pick up the phone and call him there's no reason for me to be getting the information about his life secondhand from my mom true so i think we need to facilitate um interactions and communications about our family members from themselves not from second or third parties.
0: Well, right. And how do you see gossip ultimately harming your relationship with that person? Because when you're talking about the fact that you'd rather discuss the business of a family member to another family member rather than directly to that family member, that that erodes trust over time, doesn't it? That's really the long-term effect of gossip.
2: It is, absolutely. Uh, Trust is completely broken down when gossip happens within a family. And there's a good principle behind this in that... If you if, some, if somebody is willing to gossip with you about somebody else, they're likely to be willing to gossip about you as well yeah. behind your back. Sure. So if they're talking to, if they're willing to talk to you about other family members then they're doing the same thing about you behind your back. And so you you kind of um It just breaks down your trust because you know that they're doing it to you too. They're doing it about you behind your back as well. And trust is broken down. You know, they can't trust that they're going to keep your information confidential or keep it private. Um, Yeah. it, It just really erodes the relationship and the trust and trust is the foundation of any relationship
0: it really is and this is kind of a good segue into the fourth hidden behavior that you mentioned which is deception and you've got an entire chapter on when you have violated someone's trust deception doesn't necessarily have to be something as big as maybe adultery or something along those lines but deception is a really horrible thing to go on in a family what do you do when you violated somebody's trust
2: Yes. When you violate somebody's trust, the first thing to do is to come clean and be honest about it and to sincerely apologize for um, the error of your ways. Uh, You know, a lot of people, when they... Uh, are deceptive to family members. It often happens because they're trying to cover up their own Mm sin. They've done something wrong, so they try to cover it up, and it might start as little white lies, but they're still lies. Well, those lies build upon lies build upon lies because they keep trying to cover up this lie, and this mountain is building of this deception. And unfortunately, what happens in some families is people end up going to their grave with these deception and lies that come out after their death. Mm-hmm. And you know big things come out such as infidelity, you know that that somebody has had an affair for years while they you know were alive and, and married, or um, you know they embezzled from a family business and it didn't come out until they passed away. What happens is when this, this these deceptions come out, it destroys their legacy, and um, what really needs to happen is people need to be honest and they need to be apologetic and work to repair the relationship while they're still alive because a legacy can be ruined and it's not something that can re- be repaired when
0: they're no longer here. Yeah, yeah, good point. Something else that you discuss is a lack of inclusion. I I think this one is really good food for thought for people because I think most families have experienced something along these lines where a a particular family member is not welcome or is not liked very well. This can happen when you have an in-law situation like you're mentioning in your book. And you write that it's a shame that quote-unquote good Christian families are some of the worst offenders when it comes to rejection through exclusion. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that probably will resonate with a lot of listeners. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, a lot of times people aren't included in family uh, get-togethers or family vacations. or only certain cliques within the family get together and they leave other people out. And it might be because, oh, they're well, they're they're, they're different than us. They have different beliefs, and we just don't get along with them as well. Or oh, that person has always says no, so why even bother asking? You know, they're just going to say no anyway. Well, when people are excluded, it makes them feel that they aren't wanted by their own family, and that they don't belong. Right. And God created us for relationships with our families. You know, He put us in those families for a reason, uh, and so we need to work on including all family members, regardless of the differences um, that we have, and um, work towards loving one another, regardless of um, those feelings that we may have, because you will find that we can get along with everybody regardless, and being inclusive is definitely the way Jesus walked in his lifetime. Yeah. And so we need to be more Christ-like and work to include people. That means, you know, you might have that black sheep of the family that, you know, nobody ever seems to invite for Christmas. Well, maybe it's, Your turn, you know, you need to step up and be that family member who is going to be inclusive because you can be the one to change the course of your family and change the life of that person by including them and inviting them to the next holiday.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because sometimes when you have a situation where one family member is excluded for whatever reason, then other family members start taking sides you can end up with, you know, so-and-so, yeah. the cousin Mary wasn't invited to the wedding and that really made the mother mad and the sisters mad. But now on the other side, you have Aunt Judy who's mad at them, you know, and then it just kind of yeah. goes through the whole family and then it can trickle down to their kids and then their kids are mad at each other even though they have no relationship with each other that requires them to right. do that. I mean, that's that's the stuff I think that isn't mm-hmm. talked about very much is how much it can reverberate throughout the entire clan, not just between the offender and the offendee. You're
2: absolutely right. It's like a ripple effect. It starts you know, with one little pebble and it creates one little wave. Well, those waves can go from generation to generation and they just keep going. And and unless somebody is willing to change the course of those ripples and willing to break it up and willing to turn a corner and say, no, we're not going to do it this way anymore. I think we need to work to get along and work to be inclusive so we can all be together. Um, That's the only way that true change can happen.
0: True. That's great. That's great. What about the aspect of healing? How do we trust the Lord for these matters in our families and really allow Him to heal us? I'm sure you know just because we're Christians doesn't mean some of us haven't experienced some of the things you talk about in the book. But what about starting that process of healing and being able to make things right in your family if you really have gone through some of these things? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. You know, we can't change other people, but we can change ourselves and we can change the way we react to things. And so change within the family starts with ourselves. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that self-introspection and looking at the mistakes we've made, that's hard. That can be difficult to um, deal with, but God can help us through it and God can help us change our behaviors and change our reactions. So in any situation, regardless of the mistakes that have been made in a family, God can heal. And God can bring restoration, but we need to turn it over to Him. So the first step is turning it over to God and saying, God, you know, my family's not perfect. I'm obviously not perfect. I need to work on my family relationships. Can you reveal to me what I need to do to work on my relationships so I can have better family uh, relationships with, with everybody in the extended family?
0: I think that's and great. And God will reveal that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's great because, you know, I often say this, I have a difficult time changing anything in myself, much less changing anybody around me. So, you know, it has to yeah. start with me. It has to start with me going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I really messed up. And please, you know, look into my heart, Lord, and, and create in me a clean heart. That's, that's the first order of business. And I think this is really good advice in this book. It's called Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families by Dr. Magdalena Battles. You can check out her website, Living Joy Daily. So good to have you here, Magdalena. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.